Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Sam Cuniff Allende. Ever since I finished my career as a Division I All-American athlete, I longed for not only the clarity of purpose that I had as an athlete, but also the accountability that comes with aspiring for big goals with a team of like-minded people. Then I discovered mastermind groups. Masterminds are small groups of like-minded people who get together either in person or over Skype or just over the phone to provide support, feedback, and advice to other members of the group. So I dove in and I learned all I could about mastermind groups and then I finally launched my own. And the change was instant. I regained the accountability of being part of a group of like-minded, hardworking individuals who hold me to a higher standard. My mastermind group helps me get feedback and advice and even validation when I'm making big, big decisions in my life. And I have clarity and focus and accountability again, just like when I was an athlete. I've now facilitated dozens of high performers in mastermind groups. I'm talking Olympians and MBAs and neurosurgeons and professional athletes and and entrepreneurs and lots of others. I've taken everything you need to know to start your own mastermind group and I put it into a short 10-page ebook titled The Quick and Easy Guide to Starting Your Own Mastermind Group in 30 Days or Less. Grab a copy of this free ebook by going to jimharshawjr.com slash mastermind. That's jimharshawjr.com slash mastermind. Sam is a multi-award winning social entrepreneur and co-founder and former CEO of Livity, Don't Panic, and Live Magazine. Since starting his entrepreneurial career at age 19, Sam has mentored thousands of talented young entrepreneurs and hustlers around the world. Sam is an acclaimed public speaker and advocate of business as unusual and a purpose-driven strategy consultant to brands such as Red Bull, Unilever, and PlayStation. Sam has refined the concepts explored in his best-selling book, Be More Pirate, by delivering workshops to senior executives in the headquarters of Google face and Facebook, and also to hundreds of socially conscious entrepreneurs and innovators in South Africa, the United States, United States, Greece, and the UK. For the listener, as always, if you don't have time to listen to this entire episode, or if you hear something you like, but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Sam, welcome to the show. Jim, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, uh, let's dive right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Kind of, you know, maybe where you grew up and uh, sort of the brief overview of how you got from there to where you're at now. Um, well, I should do it uh, being a fan of the show and having heard some of the recent episodes. I will do it through that, the lens of failure. Excellent. I, I started failing as a teenager. Um, my first big failure was uh, the band I started. It had the worst 
I think it was the worst named band ever. We were called Fizzy Milk. Uh, <laughs> That's great. And my first, my first failure, well, after the name was the discovery that I couldn't sing. So the band kicked me out and they were my friends. So feeling sorry <laughs> for me, they, they made me be the manager. And I asked, what does the manager do? And they said, you get us some gigs. And so my very first entrepreneurial act was to put a band on in a scout hut in a tiny little town in South London. I convinced my older sister's boyfriend to buy a load of beer, which we sold out the back of his car. Uh, and I walked away with, you know, the popularity of all the guys and girls and these teenagers that had come to this sweaty little <laughs> event. And I walked away with about 200 pounds and that really changed my life. And uh, my teenage years were spent failing at putting on events until I kind of hit my teen, my late teens. I'd, I'd trained as a chef, I fell out of college, um, got into a really great top-notch Marco Pierre White restaurant, realized I hated the pace and the kind of the, the kind of the misogyny and extreme uh, competitiveness of the kitchen environment. And so started doing nightclubs full time. I got into a lot of trouble, went on tour with bands. I got myself tons of death threats, nearly got a band <laughs> killed. Uh, wow. <laughs> I got kicked out of my own nightclub by that, my own security. Also, that sound like, those sound like separate episodes altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were some, <laughs> some good failings. And that uh, started my first real business, Don't Panic, which formed out of my bedroom. It was kind of club promotions, events, flyers, design. And uh, it turned into something extraordinary, really, from my, my, my bedroom to a warehouse we took over. We were doing an awful lot of print for an, a lot of events and nightclubs, and a lot of cash was passing through our hands. And I didn't have a lot of business acumen. And I found myself in a massive amount of debt on my 21st birthday, about about quarter of a million pounds wow. at the time to some uh, pretty big printers who came down with some pretty scary threats. And as is the message of your show, and as I've heard again and again on various episodes, that acute moment, 21, extraordinary debt, so much fun that we'd had and, and an acuteness to get out of this situation, to not let anybody down. And really, that was the moment at which I taught myself business. Uh, I, I then, with some really good friends, we built that into a real business. We, we un started to understand what the profit margins were, how the business could grow. We paid everything back. We built the business up. Um, and it's absolute thriving business now. I, I'm no longer involved in the day-to-day, -day, but I think it was the third most awarded agency at Cannes at the International Festival of Ideas last wow. year. So it's doing, you know, that's now, it's nearly 20 years old, although my, my friend who's, who runs it likes to reposition it as a startup every few years, likes to give it a kind of new look of paint. And then my, my kind of failing there was, you know, realizing that I'd taken this thing that I loved and the passion of it, and I, I kind of, for me, I'd sold it a little bit by having to get it to the size and profitability to get it out of trouble. Um, I'd taken away some of the aspects that I love, this kind of change the world mentality, let, let's really make a difference. As I'd not corporatized it, it's still a very rebellious business, but you know, it, it taught me something. You know, you, you've got to really watch out for the soul of the things that you start as they begin to scale. And so I used all of that inspiration and created my my most successful business to date called Liberty, which is a social enterprise that, that stands for young people. We give young people platforms and opportunities to transform their lives. It's called a transformation engine, actually, most oftentimes by the young people who use our services. But to our clients, which is the business model, we, we are a marketing agency. So to 
the likes of Netflix and PlayStation. We run their global youth communications, creating content and campaigns. And the reason they're so effective, the reason we win agency of the year and campaign of the year again and again is because, yeah, if you look around the big old warehouse that we're in, in the middle of Brixton in South London, it looks like any other agency that anybody would recognize, you know, more Max than the Max store and exposed brick walls and stuff. But the cool thing about Liberty is that there's hundreds of young people here every single day, young entrepreneurs, young hustlers, young students, people looking for a safe place, looking for a place to work, whether it's the homework or, or start the business that's going to change their lives. And that melting pot of experience, our, our clients' experience for the world and our young people's kind of the naivety and their experience and ambition and, and, and questioning ability is where we make both world-changing campaigns and create life-changing experiences for these young people. You know, it was, it's always nice because a lot of times before I do these interviews, this is for the listener, I, I we do a quick video. We just record the audio, but uh, we do a video sort of Skype in, in advance and just get to know to know the person. And uh, so Sam, you showed me, right? you know, just kind of gave me a, a glimpse, a small glimpse inside of your office. It looks like a, a cool place and buzzing in the background with people and, and a lot of things going on. So it sounds like you've created something pretty awesome, you know, and everybody seems to have a business idea. You've mentored a lot of young entrepreneurs. Yep. Why do you think everybody wants to have a business. Everybody, why do you think everybody has that, that entrepreneurial streak in them, or at least that, 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 that glimmer of hope in their eye that maybe one day they'll start that business? I, th I think it's pretty profound. I think the real reasons for it. Um, in the UK, I think the intention to start a business is around about 30%. And I think in the US, it's slightly higher. Um, and then it drops down to about 5% of people who actually do. Uh, and this is changing. This number is really dramatically changing. Uh, last year in both our countries was the highest ever number of directors uh, recorded with legal companies behind them under the age of 30. But then if you go to a prison, the uh, propensity to start business rockets up to 60, 70 percent. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. So there's something there's something to be drawn from these these kind of trends. And if you go into the informal economy, if you go to you know the highest rates of, of recorded or unrecorded entrepreneurship, if you look into markets, we've got offices in in South Africa and Johannesburg, and we did in Lagos in Nigeria and, and Kenya. You start stepping outside of the formal ideas of what we understand to be entrepreneurship, and you'll you'll see it rise again. And the area that I'm most interested in at the moment uh, would never ever call themselves entrepreneurs. It's kind of a pre-enterprise stage, or, or more commonly, I think the, the term would be used, the side hustle, uh, a kind of mindset where it's it's ordinary. and not. In fact, there's a guy came into our office the other day, a young guy with a T-shirt that says, even my side hustle has a side hustle. <laughs> and, uh, and this idea that you can be part student, part part-time job, you know, you're part of a friend's initiative, they're starting up, someone else is building an app, you're making a thing. This is where I think it, it, it dawns, you know, long before we come up with the trappings of the terminology and, and, and the narrative around it, it's a desire. It's a desire to make a difference. It's a desire to articulate yourself into the world. It's an idea, an ideal of self-determination. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing such an explosion in it, because 10 years ago, or even less, maybe, when certainly longer when I was starting out, you needed a business plan, you needed a bank manager, you needed all this externality, which really took the idea. Like you say, everybody has the idea, took it away, it makes it more difficult, you have to put it down, it, it loses momentum. Now, the, the notion that you can take this idea and make it something is, you know, basically, it's only you and the device in your pocket, it's all you need. So it's, it's both 
uh, more straightforward, which means we see the explosion in a, in, a, in a desire to articulate who you are. And it's also, I think, partly explains the rise of you know, values-driven organizations, because the less you've diluted that process by having to create a narrative around it, the more an honest reflection of you and your own values it is. What do you feel are some of the biggest mistakes? Because there's so many of them fail, right? Speaking of failure and my pod, name on my podcast, so many businesses fail. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see young or new entrepreneurs make? So I think there's a really uh, fine line here, and anyone out there who's involved in, in mentoring will be super aware of this. You know, how do you harness the ambition of a, of a young entrepreneur, uh, yet try not to let them run before they can walk? Yeah. So oftentimes I will you know, have a 17-year-old who's got a fantastic idea, but you can see they haven't, you know, they haven't yet got the kind of scars. You, know, you don't really know who you, what you're made of until you've had the stuffing knocked out of you. And I will encourage them to try to find a, an entrepreneur or, or a business that's a few years ahead of them and, and go and get a job within a small organization so they'll really learn the ropes, but they can, they can kind of make some mistakes on someone else's money. They can, they can have their failure in a safer environment so that they don't, they don't suffer the knockbacks that might take them off this road altogether for the rest of their life. And yet, you try and convey that wisdom, <laughs> and, and rarely does anyone <laughs> want to take it, because the real entrepreneur of them is like, what do you mean I should go sure. and get a job? <laughs> uh, right. So I think it's a very, very fine line, and we, we have that here with the young guys I work with. How do, you, how do you make sure you're not setting someone up for failure by allowing them to stretch too far, whilst at the same time, really back the ambitious, you know, whatever it is, that gene that separates entrepreneurs from anyone else, that desire and that willingness to go the extra mile to do it. I think that's one of the hardest parts. And you seem to have a little bit of a a unique mindset, I sense, on entrepreneurialism. Like you, um, you, you're an advocate of, quote, business as unusual. What, what is that? What do you mean by that? I struggle with the narrative that I think we've allowed business to be owned by you know I, I respect and admire what you're doing because you've, you've, you've linked success to failure but I think that's a very rare conversation the typical measures of success of business are one-dimensional and they don't do justice to the opportunity of business in most of our lives how do we measure success numbers usually how many people do you work how many people are in your company what's your turnover you know these numbers have got nothing to do with success you know, you can have a hundred people in your firm today or a million tomorrow and actually, you know, you might be desperately out of profit. Your turnover has got nothing to do with your viability or your innovation. Yeah. The success of business, you know, to my earlier point, what's the reason for it? It's, it's internal. It's something about who we are. So the new measures of success of business should be our ability to collaborate, our ability to communicate, our ability to convey ideas or bring others with us. You know, that's what the real vehicle is. And somehow along the way, we've allowed the kind of trappings of the administrators of, 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 of the legal profession and the accountancy profession, all the kind of trappings that go around it to take the narrative of business and turn it into something that's less multidimensional than it deserves to be. And we forget that all of these things are just organizations, extensions of humanity. And that's really what makes them brilliant and amazing. So I push very hard when business success language and terminology becomes you know, black and white. That's, that's very far away from what the true opportunity is. So Sam, what do you say when someone says, yeah, but you still have to pay the bills, right? You have to keep the lights on. You've got to make money, um, you know, especially if you have a young family to feed and, and that sort of thing. How do, you, how do you balance the two? 
if you're starting a business just to pay the bills, then you know you probably go and get a job. Uh, the the ambition has to be several times higher. Of course, paying the bills should be rudimentary. Your your earlier question: what's the what's the main cause of failure? The main cause of failure, fundamentally, in nearly ninety percent of startups, is cash flow. But let's not make the entire conversation about business cash flow. You know, so let's take that as a hygiene factor. Let's take the fact that you will be a good leader. Let's take the fact that you'll look after your team. Let's take the fact that you'll operate with integrity and you will manage your cash flow with rigor and effectiveness as the basic hygiene factors. You know, that's building your house on the stones. So then let's get back up into the kind of space that we should be aspiring to. So where does this thing go? What's its greatest opportunity for change? What's your greatest opportunity for expansion and transformation? What is your dream that this place can go to? And I think that's the, the challenge of the entrepreneur because the gravitational pull of the administration side of it is so strong and therefore the ability to justify, well, we had to do this because I had to keep writing, great. But I think a reality check that a percentage of business is about the administration, but a large percentage of, 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 of an entrepreneur's role is very much about the vision and the opportunity and where can this thing really go and who can I take on this journey? It's an interesting perspective because you see you see so many successful businesses that are also enjoyable places to work. They're they're highly sought after places to work, um, and they're usually the type of companies that that focus on you know taking care of people. They're collaborative. They're open environments, and uh, it seems to me that the idea of focus on the process not the outcome fits here, right? You know, if you focus on the process, if you focus on being collaborative, if you focus on making change and in making the change you want to see in the world and, and, uh, in collaboration and taking care of people and all these things, it, it seems like if you take care of those, you're going to increase your chances of success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. If the, fo- if the focus isn't do great work, then right. chances are you, you, the pressure of the day-to-day has ground you down and, and you're setting your sights low. If the focus is getting to the end of the day or getting to the end of the week or getting to the end of the month, then chances are there's a very strong reality check. Is this business viable? Do you have the, the, the strength? And, and is, is the moment in time and do you have the resources? You know, those are the questions that you perhaps need to ask yourself. I think you know, like a bad relationship, no, the, the greatest tragedy of, of life is a life half-lived. And is the relationship with your business allowing you to do that if it's just the grind? Um, but then lifting it back up, I think, is where this all gets really interesting. I'm, I'm a hopeless, romantic, optimistic, naive you know, entrepreneur in this space. And I know this narrative <laughs> isn't, isn't the norm. The first time, I, I was three years into the growth of Liberty. So by that point, eight years into my entrepreneurial journey, I got my first ever business advisor. You know, throughout this, this time, I'd read a lot of books and I'd been working out myself. And the business advisor came in, they sat me down. The business by then was a couple of million pounds, and maybe we were 40 staff. And their question was, Well, what's your exit strategy? Now, a very common question to any entrepreneur. Sure. I'm sure everyone, everyone listening out there, you know, if they don't know their exit strategy, they certainly know what it means. I sat there, looked at them, and then took them to the fire escape. I thought that's what they meant. I thought they meant the exit strategy was, well, Here's how we get out. What's the plan to get out of here? And, and <laughs> they seem rather paranoid, right? Yeah, exactly. Really? That's the opening question. Um, 
And so, you know, with some fondness, uh, they, they explained to me why most people start businesses. <laughs> and, or perhaps not why most people start businesses, but the, again, the gravitational pull that draws a lot of businesses in that way. And I was fascinated. Oh, really? You know, how interesting. Yeah, I can see that maybe to cash out with a life-changing sum of money is, is, a, is a motivating goal. I took myself and I did a, a mini MBA for entrepreneurs and studied much more of this stuff. And I had a singular question to every single entrepreneur I know who'd cashed out and exited. And eventually I'd asked hundreds, hundreds this very same question. Were you happy after exiting? And I'd only found one who said yes. Wow. One. Everybody else said, a mm, bit frustrated, really missed it, and then did it again. Because we're all here. Yeah. We, love, we, we love the yeah. thrill of building. We're, sure. we're people who are supposed to make things. And again, that's what I mean. We, we then, we, it's a mistake to think the trappings of the narrative of just the, what's the basics, the admin, the baseline. The baseline is that you want a healthy business and look after the people and there's a degree of profit. It's after that where it gets really interesting. And we get, we get confused that the, that the basics are actually the end goal. Exit this thing, and that won't satisfy who you are—the the, the appetite and ambition that you've got that's enabled you to make something that very few other people can actually create in the world. Use that for what it's truly for. Yeah, you wrote the book, best-selling book, "Be More Pirate." So, so what do we learn? What can we learn from the the quote? You know, in your words, radical strategies of golden age pirates. So I find myself uh, in an interesting position, as many of us as, as will. Um, you know, regardless of political persuasions, I think it's possible in both of our countries to look to our current levels of leadership on all sides of the spectrum, and sigh. You know, we're, we're, there's a bit of a vacuum of real new ideas and thinking that perhaps is equal to the level of both challenge and opportunity that the middle of the 21st century offers us. Um, I find it rare to really find the, the, the highest levels of leadership in business to the organisations that I consult. More often, there's a sense of fear and a foreboding and a conversation about disruption and transformation that rarely really uh, ladders up to the kind of seizing the opportunity or even avoiding the, the, the crises we face. Um, but rather than be depressed, I spend more of my time increasingly with these incredible young entrepreneurs. And you mentioned some of them from Baltimore to Detroit to, to, to Athens and, and the turning around of the economic situation there to the, the outer skirts of the tough areas of London. And in those entrepreneurs, I find nothing but inspiration and, and, and innovation and real ambition, a real sense of belief that not only have the institutions that are supposed to be there to support them let them down, but that they're not needed anyway. And they have the tools that they require to create the change that they want to see in the world. And this really fills me with some you know, positive energy. And I was trying to, you know, as I was leaving Liberty, I'd always said that, that Liberty is an organization that predominantly works with young people, that I would step aside when I hit 40. 40 would be too old. And it was easy for me to say that when I was 24, because that's when I set it up. And 24, as you know, you know, 40 seems like it's never going to happen. Of course. Um, and then, lo and behold, it does. And, and everybody <laughs> had heard me say this enough times. So it was time to go. And the, the book was my transition project. How would I uh, ease out of the business and give the new leadership team enough time and space of their own and uh, I'm sure everyone who listens to the show is familiar with that old um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt line, if you want to know the next thing you should do, you should take a look at what scares you most. And for me, writing has been that. I, I, I love yeah, the I've idea never heard that. I love that, though. It's great, isn't yeah. it? I mean, and uh, I'm dyslexic. I have a chip on my shoulder. I didn't make it to university. Um, and also with all the businesses I've run, it's been a big team effort. So I was very, you know, really wanted to, could I do something on my own? Could I do something? Could I create something? Could I write something? So I spent a year and put all my angry thoughts about the opportunity of a new generation that I think we're overlooking, about the leadership that I think we're missing, but really is within us all, 
and I was hanging out for a metaphor. I pitched it as a business book. I pitched it as a book called Purpose First, and it was about this new dawn of business and, and really putting our priorities into shape and leading organizations just to hit the financial bottom line is missing the, the, the next stage of business evolution. And Jim, I've got to tell you, it was the most boring book on earth. <laughs> it was, I, got, I got quite far in. I got a book deal, but by golly, I was, I was boring myself. And I was, I was running some of the material through these workshops that I run with young entrepreneurs, and even they were like yawning at me. And, and one guy <laughs> said to me, he said, Dan, where's, where's, where's all the usual stuff? Where's all you, why, well, you know, you, you're waving your hands in the air, telling us about astronauts and pirates. And I went back to my desk and wrote this note, where are the pirates? And I started doing a bit of research. I went down to the Greenwich Maritime Museum just outside London and started looking, you know, but of course, I'm not talking about Somali pirates. I'm not talking about Chinese pirates. I'm not talking about internet pirates. I'm talking about the golden age of pirates. And I discovered something. I discovered part of history that's been lost to us all. The golden age of pirates were the millennials of the 18th century. Average age 28. They looked out on their future. They felt that they'd been sold short. The institutions and establishment at the time were particularly self-interested and didn't have a plan for the disruption that was coming and they faced mass redundancy. So rather than make the greatest mistake that this generation can make, which is to believe that the way things are is the way things have to be, they rewrote the rules of the society in which they existed. And to do that, to begin with, you've got to break some rules. They stepped outside the normal social contract. On board their ships, they created a new society. They established new principles that, that turned around that which they had existed in. So suddenly there was democracy. Everybody had equal say on these ships. Uh, every single pirate on board uh, had a vote in the matters at hand. So they were more representative than even Athenian democracy. Uh, they had an understanding of diversity that we still struggle with now. They were regularly releasing uh, slaves and on, in, inviting people of color to be part of the team, not just part of the team, but part of the team with equal say and equal pay. They had female leaders at a time in the world where women wow. were regarded of equal capacity but of equal intelligence. They invited a system of fair pay, a fair pay that had some of the recommendations that were made around the great financial collapse of 2009 that we still haven't managed to put in check, where checks and balances meant that nobody was being disproportionately over or underpaid. They invented a system of um, workplace compensation. So, Jim, if you were the, on board the pirate ship and you lost a leg, you'd get 800 pieces of eight, or an arm would be 600 pieces of eight. The first time this had ever wow. been seen. And, of course, 140 years later, it became a, 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 a law, and then it became an inalienable human right. Uh, their, their, their system of halacracy, of self-organizing teams. They were using agile network systems 300 years before those things were the buzzwords they are today. And the only way they could take on the might of the Spanish Armada or the Royal British Navy was not just their network systems, but also their incredibly sophisticated branding. The Skull and Crossbones is a meme designed to go viral to deliver the single message that all good marketing should because there was no way they could take them on on eagle fighting terms, and they were not the violent rogues that we understand them to be. That was part of the marketing communication, and some economists and historians will strongly argue they were some of the more peaceful people that were on the sea at the time. And I could go on. This innovation of these organizations is part of the story that's been lost, and I think it has a particular prescience and relevance today. That's absolutely fascinating. I had no idea, and, and probably most of the listeners didn't either, about anything that you just said there. So that, that, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting take and an interesting uh, sort of revelation and discovery, which was, you know, history right in front of us. Um, well, so, well, Jim and dear listeners, I was the most surprised person. And, and as I was writing the book, as an, as an entrepreneur, as someone looking for my next startup, I can't tell you how inspiring these, these individuals are as role models. And really, 
but because there's any hesitation, you know, we think we know pirates, we think it's Jack Sparrow or Captain Hook. Of course we do, right? We've got to, just got to park that because we all know they've got this funny place in our lives, you know. Sure. Uh, we've both got children the same age our our youngest I'm sure we both have been to pirate fancy dress parties of course yeah but (laughs) tell me any other uh, quasi-socialist murderous rogues from history that you'd let your children go to a fancy dress theme party would you let your kid you know have you ever been invited to a Pablo Escobar themed children's party it doesn't happen right? (laughs) right but pirates have this unique place but we don't know the half of it and at this moment in time when we're all feeling this sense of frustration, you know, this is, is this the best that we're going to get? And with all this power that we as the entrepreneurs have, a growing power as our community of entrepreneurs grows, I encourage you to look to, again to these role models who truly should sit somewhere between the civil rights and the suffragettes on the, on the spectrum of role models and change agents. And at the time, they were viewed as working class heroes, social innovators, and really probably the unicorns of their day. Yeah, the morality was viewed very differently. And if we had time, we could get into that one. But um, yeah, well, I, I well, let me ask you this, Sam how do we how do we take this and turn this into action for the listener who is saying that is you know that's fascinating and you know of course we direct them to to buy the book and for the listener I'll have that link in the action plan again jimharshawjr.com slash action and you'll get all the links there, but. So, what, but what would be an action item, like something that the listener could do in the next twenty-four to forty-eight hours to take this mindset and apply it to their lives, and especially for the person who's thinking, "I've got this business idea, I've got this thing that I want to do," or maybe they're in business for themselves now, and uh, and they and they and they want to make this real and, and take this and make this concrete. Any any thoughts there? Yeah, well, I, I got really excited when I was uh, taking apart the concept of the mutiny. Um, I think we're all familiar with the current uh, modus operandi, you know, permission-based change. Those, those, of us listen, those of you guys listening who are within large organizations or perhaps part of your enterprises, uh, connected to large organizations, you know, the, the, the freedom of being an entrepreneur is, is both remarkable and relatively rare. Usually change or, or permission-based change, which I think that is what most of us experience, we know how it works, right? The best ideas on earth are then asked to be put into PowerPoint slides and then sent to the death of a thousand thoughts on email threads where, where good ideas go to die. <laughs> and the few and far between are the organizations that we know, even our most innovative startups that are actually keeping pace with the level of change going on outside the walls of our organizations. So I'm advocating a pirate inspired new form called professional rule breaking. I think it's the next 21st century skill professional rule breaking pushes you to the edges. I mean, if you're, if you're within an organization, it might even get you, you know, getting nearly fired once a year is probably <laughs> the right benchmark of success. But it's taking the idea that you want, and rather than submitting it, it's taking the, the, the approach that asking forgiveness is probably better than asking for permission and putting it into play. Now, in professional rule-breaking or a mutiny, there's no OKR, there's no KPI. The new measure of success is others beginning to follow your idea. So I've studied this, and, and this workshop has really taken off. I've been booked by Heineken, Lego, Mercedes, into some really large organizations where they're struggling to move at pace, as well as running it with entrepreneurs. And what we're seeing with this notion is actually suddenly you've got a methodology that enables not just uh, fast-paced change, but actually new rules to be written. And the more I've studied it, you realize most of the rules that we follow, rules in inverted uh, commas, not the regulations or laws that are really there to protect us, but the rules really their habits or, or behaviors or, 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 or parts of the status quo that have just formed over time through pes- precedent, perspective, and power. And so equally, 
a small group of people who start doing you know, budgeting in a new way, start running meetings in new ways, uh, start organizing in a new way, just push that idea out and something begins. And it's much like the agile development techniques used in, in, in technology. But I've seen it happen again and again now. A small team go, right, we're not going to run these sessions like this anymore. We're not going to hold ourselves to this, this, uh, the punctuality of uh, this organization anymore. Here's our new principle. We're going to begin doing this tomorrow. And then over time, it becomes the new social norm. And very, very rapidly, you can change culture, you know, slow-moving cultural parts of any organization overnight. So it's a modern mutiny. It's a form of professional rule-breaking. It's inspired by the Golden Age of Pirates, and I encourage it as a daily practice, much like we might go for a run, get our seven hours of sleep, or even our five veggies a day. <laughs> Break a rule every single day. And so the, the rule-breaking muscle will be strong as you need it when the time comes for the rule that you most need to break when doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Over. Yeah. Man. Love it, Sam. Uh, for the listener, I would recommend going back and listen to that last couple of minutes there again, because that was just powerful stuff and truth and, uh, probably a little, uh, you know, a little contrary to what you're normally used. To, well, definitely contrary to what we're, we're used to thinking and, and which is kind of, uh, the norm and the mediocrity around us. Um, this is a, a new way of thinking and a, and a way of thinking that helps you, rise above the mediocrity and, and do things differently. So, um, and, and is by definition the, the opposite of status quo. So thank you for that, Sam. My pleasure. Can you tell us about a time where you failed? Because, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to say everything that you're saying here, and, and, but, but, but you've actually found success through this mindset. But were there failures along the way? Were there struggles? And, and you told us, you actually alluded to this, this a little bit earlier in the episode here, but can you take us to that time when you failed, you felt that overwhelming self-doubt, that hopelessness that, that often comes from failure, and how you were able to move through that? Yeah, I mean, like, like I'm sure everyone listening, if we're honest, the majority of all of this is failures. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I thought about this with your title. What, what success doesn't come through failure? You know, have you heard yet somebody tell you a story of success nope. that had no, no failure no. attached? Yeah. Um, you know, success, I think, is a mess. You know, if you're right in the middle of some <laughs> messy stuff, chances are you're doing the right thing. And how you get through it and, and finding the strand that's going to lead you there is the thing. But sometimes there's just the out-and-out failure. The, uh, yeah, my heart must leave. Uh, I have three times had to make significant redundancies and cuts into the business. And I suppose that's not necessarily the failure itself. That's an act to protect the longevity of the business. But in that moment, I can't think, I can't think of anything worse that's happened to me in business. Now, it's the end result of a multitude of failings um, and an ability to read the markets and what was going on outside fast enough. But having to make people who fought side by side with you, in some instances, people I've been with for years, you know, close friends, really, over that time, and to have to let them go. You know, and, and try and help them find another job whilst you're rapidly trying to clear the, the business that you're in up and move people out and do that with dignity and do that with respect and hold on to your own self, not lose yourself in, in the, the feeling of failure overwhelming you so you can pick up the phone the same day that you're letting people out of the office and then still try and sell the business that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't wish that on anyone. And yeah. those those three times that I've had to do it over the twenty years of being in, in business, uh, yeah, that's the that's the lowest. 
And and for the listener, I want you to recognize that, you know, it, it's one thing for Sam to share this in the last, you know, 30 seconds or a minute about these, like these were real experiences. And I know you, the listener, are experiencing real struggle, real adversity, real setback, real failure in your life. Maybe right now, maybe it's in your past, or certainly there's some coming in the future. You can pretty much guarantee that if you are, if you're moving forward, that is in your life. And so I want you to recognize in that moment that this is normal. Like this is part of the plan. This is part of the process. And you've heard this over and over and over from successful people on this podcast, whether they're speakers or authors or writers or astronauts, professional athletes or entrepreneurs, you name it, they've experienced it. And it's real and it's normal. You've got to just put the put your one foot in front of the other and keep taking action. So Sam, yeah, thank you. And it's, it's, I mean, I think I, I, I echo that to anybody listening and feeling the pressure of it all. The truth is, this is the norm, you know, feeling stressed and it being a moment of, a moment of failure is, is the majority of this experience. Because when you do get to the success that you've been dreaming of, you'll discover that uh, the, the, the moment when you get what you used to want, it's not what you want anymore. You know, failure is present. Success is always just a little bit out of the distance. Um, and if you're not really in some way out of your depth, then probably you're not pushing yourself. And when you do get to the place that feels like a success, it's not going to feel like it anymore. And that's the danger. That's the risk in all of this. It puts humans into a, the position that we're not supposed to be in because it's a constant place of stress. And so those chemicals flying through your body that are just supposed to be there in moments of risk are, are there semi-permanently. And it's why the com I'm so welcome the conversation about resilience and about mental health and about yeah. really keeping an eye on that is is so so present entrepreneurs up there with those in a conflict situation you know high performance athletes there are very few conditions or maybe someone that's working in um the emergency room you know who have this daily sense and that that really is it and and conversely that is the indicator of success <laughs> if you're going through hard times again and again then that does mean you're putting yourself out there that does mean that you're taking risks. That does mean that you're experiencing the mess of success. So it's a very, very tough choice to make and, and, and go into that with an awareness of it and make sure there is a recovery space in there as well. Yeah, excellent. Sam, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Where can listeners find your book and follow you on social media, et cetera? Uh, I am Sam Conniff, S-A-M-C-O-N-N-I-F-F. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find in most of those places. And my full name, Sam Conifiende, I'm really the only one of them. So LinkedIn or Twitter, come and get me. And I'm, I'm, I'm on those things, so I will reply and say hi. Excellent. And for the listener, we'll have links, all of those links right there in the action plan, jimharshawjr.com slash action. Sam, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Appreciate the insights. Jim, it's been a real pleasure. I, I absolutely stand for what you represent. Success and failure is the link that too few people talk about. So if I can ever help in the future or to anybody else listening, if any of these things are interesting, do reach out. Excellent. And for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. 